Well, it's really great to see you all this morning. Thank you for all those tuning in and those in the room. I'm not wearing my usual attire today because we invited people to maybe wear something a little different as a demonstration of our preparedness for coming with garments of praise today. And um, I gotta say, I felt a little conscious walking from my car to the city center wearing this beautiful top which a pastor friend of mine from Chennai in India bought for me. It's not the complete outfit, he bought me some white trousers as well. Um, and I've got to be honest, there's two problems with them. First of all, I tried them on and I couldn't get them over my calves. So, um, and secondly, they were see-through. So, I hope you understand that I made what I believe is the right choice this morning in not wearing the full outfit. But I love the dynamics. Some people are wearing different sort of costumes, different parts of the world. And I love that we are a family of nations here at the church. And it's a great joy to be a part of such an international family. Um, this is the last week that you will look towards the stage and see the scaffolding, I understand. So scaffolding comes down this week. Our ceiling is now safe. So um, that's been repaired. Um, it's been an expensive job, but it's one that's been important um, to complete for the um, avoidance of everybody needing to wear hard hats on Sunday. So we're grateful for all this time where they've been able to work on that and get that ready to go. I had a pastor friend of mine who was doing a series called Rebuild, and he, he called me, he said, I wish I'd thought of the stage set like you had. I said, it's not a stage set. It's just repairs taking place. But um, we're looking forward to hopefully getting a little bit more capacity back in the room as well as scaffolding comes down. When you complete a series, particularly a series that's gone on for nine weeks, which is longer than our series normally lasts, that um, there's a danger that at the end of it, people cheer not because they've enjoyed it, but because they're just glad it's over. So I hope today that um, there will be a sense of joy around what we've looked at together, which has been about the clothing that Christ gives us, a new wardrobe that he gives us as followers of Jesus. And to be honest, just as I felt conscious walking through the city this morning, wearing an Indian shirt, wondering what people would think of me, it just felt a little bit conspicuous. The reality is when we wear clothes that God has given us, we do feel conspicuous. We do feel like we stand out. We do feel that people might look and pull a face and say, why are you wearing that? But we're going to see and remind ourselves that the clothing that Christ gives us is not an optional extra. It's not an additional wardrobe. It's meant to replace our wardrobe previously. It's not a physical wardrobe, it's spiritual clothing that we are called, not just encouraged, but we are commanded to put on. Let's look at our key text together, which is Colossians 3, and maybe just attend to this mic with you, because I can hear it feeding back. Thank you. Um, Colossians 3, verses 12 to 15, it says these words. Since God chose you to be holy, anybody chosen to be holy this morning? Yes. You have been chosen by God. Since he has chosen you to be holy people he loves, you must, look at the emphasis there, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, 
with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And this is what we look at today. And always, say after me, always. always. And again, always. always. Look for the asterisks with the exclusion clauses about the circumstances. And realize there is no asterisks. And say again after me, would you? Always. always. And always be thankful. Why don't you say, always be thankful. Always. And again, always be thankful. See, what we wear, it projects and persuades us of our new identity in Christ Jesus. And we've looked at all of these things so far that I've just read through. Isaiah 61 verse 3, in the New King James Version, it says these words. To console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, notice the swath there, the oil of joy for mourning, notice the swath there, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, notice the swath there. Those that wear that swath, that get rid of the old wardrobe and wear the new, they will be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Now, before I look at the garments of praise this morning, and we are going to end a bit later on with a sense of rejoicing and alignment to the things of God in a new gear and a new level in just a few moments' time. But before I look at the garment of praise, there are some things I need to take you on a bit of a background journey, almost like a pre-seminar before the talk, that I think will help you. First of all, these key texts that we've been looking at over this series from Colossians 3 were written in an interesting context. There were two things I want to draw your attention to. One of them is that Paul, who wrote this letter to the church, to the Colossian church, he was writing from his prison cell. That's a very interesting place to write from and say, always be thankful. Secondly, he'd never met the people he was writing to. This was a group of people that he had heard from someone else that there were challenges in this community. And one of the challenges they were facing, there were people that had infiltrated the church and they were introducing new teaching, wrong teaching. And Paul was concerned about this wrong teaching and he wanted to help them understand the truth. He replies in this letter with some of the clearest and the most descriptive language about the supremacy and the sufficiency and the centrality of Christ. And there was a reason why he did that. Because these false teachers, they weren't denying Jesus, but they were lowering him. 
he wasn't quite as central or as required as the gospel says he is. And you see, the main battleground in your heart and in my heart is not that we believe in Jesus. It's not that we have a faith or we call ourselves Christians. The main battlefield of our hearts as followers of Jesus is that he is central. That there's no other throne, only one throne that we bow before and worship. And that's the battle of following Jesus is that daily there is a battle to stop other thrones pitching up in our lives. It's not so much a game of thrones, but the war of thrones within us. Is he the only throne? Or is he a throne among thrones? And Paul addressed these teachings that didn't deny Jesus, but they watered Jesus down. Today, there are many false teachers around. Some of them have got YouTube channels, some of them write books, some of them host conferences. And we have to have our radars up. Just because someone sells lots of teaching doesn't mean to say that we should take everything they say. We are called to be mature in the Lord. Just because hundreds of thousands of people have watched a YouTube video doesn't mean to say that everything in that YouTube video is to be digested. We have to measure everything against the Word of God. And the same responsibility exists for you here this morning regarding what I say. Just because God has called me to be the lead pastor of Rediscover Church doesn't mean to say I'll always get it right or my views are always the thing that are the, the right thing. It's important that we grow to maturity so that we can weigh things up. That's what spiritual maturity is. Not to become cynical and not believe anything anyone says, but to always measure up against the measurement of God's word. If I say anything that is not in here, then it doesn't matter how much you like me, it doesn't matter how nice I smile, or it doesn't matter how much you enjoy we discover, if it's not in here, don't build your life on it. And also come and talk to us about it as well. Not in a way that we're going to battle it out, but I just lo would love to hear because you might have something to correct me on. The main battle in our lives, through all the false teachers, all the false teachings, is to make sure that Jesus is high and lifted up and above all else. But be aware that most false teaching doesn't introduce the names of other gods. It just diminishes the centrality of the one that we worship. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses, they will say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. Yeah, we believe he's the son of God. But if you go to John's Gospel, chapter 1 in their, in their Bible, in their translation, in their version, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, is what we have. But they say the Word was a God. See, you notice the watering down there? You notice the redaction of the significance? Mormons, they will say that Jesus is God. He's the firstborn spirit son of God, but he's not part of the Trinity in their belief. You see, you notice the watering down there? The Muslims, they will believe that Jesus was a prophet, that he said good things, that he wasn't a bad man. They will elevate with, re with reverence the words of Jesus, but 
He's one of a, prof, of a number of prophets. And you know it's the trend, the trend to water down, the trend to lower, the trend to reduce off the throne the centrality and the supremacy and the importance of Christ. And that's exactly what Paul was addressing to the church in this letter. And that's the challenge that we all face in our lives today. Is Jesus central? Is he central to everything? Is God, is he trustworthy? Is he true? Is he faithful? He's the word of God. He's the first and the last. He's the king of kings. He's the mountain mover, the way maker. He's the one who just opens doors that no one else can open. He's the one who's supreme. He's the one who holds the stars in space. He's the one who keeps a universe without any scaffolding held together. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the joy and the peace and the life and the hope. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth. That's our God. And anything that waters him down, don't believe it. Don't hear it. But I think our radars are fairly good at picking up those things. But as well as us discerning teaching that will seek to water down or redact the significance of Jesus in some way, there's another more powerful and more subtle influence that seeks to infiltrate your heart and my heart to reduce the significance of Jesus in our life. And this powerful thing that keeps knocking on the door of our life is our culture, is our world. Culture knocks on our life and seeks to set up other gods. Culture has always been a powerful force. In fact, I'm going to read a verse from Romans 12, verse 2, which I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation, which may not be quite so familiar to you, but it says this, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Our behavior and our customs and our dress before the Lord is meant to be different to this world. The NIV, which you probably be more familiar with, says it this way. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. There is a pattern. That pattern is not changing as time goes on. That pattern is always to get the people in the world to either establish a throne in their life that has some other God, or if you're following Jesus, the pattern is to get you to put multiple thrones in your heart so that Jesus is watered down. That has been happening since mankind began. Much of the Old Testament is a picture of this very battle. We see the battle with the patterns and the behaviors and the customs of the world around them. Do you remember? God established the people of God. He said, I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you remember that declaration of commitment that God has over the people of God? And then he says, I'm going to take you into a land and it's a land flow of milk and honey. And 
What did the people say? All the nations around us have a king. They have a palace. We want a king. And God says, I'm your king. And what do they say? Well, we know that God, but we'd love a king like the other nations. God says, no, you wouldn't. And they say, yes, we would. Oh, no, you wouldn't. Oh, yes, we would. And the craziness of it was that, you see, there's no one who can take place on the throne that's ever going to be as good as God. There's no one that's as loving as God who's ever going to sit on the throne. There's no one as faithful as God who's ever going to sit on the throne. There's no one who can protect the people as good as God who's ever going to sit on the throne. And God said, if you have a king, they will do some good things, but they will also do some bad things. And that's the story we see time and time again, mapped out. And we see that there's some ugly scenes in the, in the Old Testament where they invade a nation. And they're told, don't take any of the goods from that nation because other nations had idols. You know where an idol is? In those days, it might have been manifest in a carving of some sort, a God made in image, whether it's carved out of wood or, car or formed out of silver or some other precious metal. But at the end of the day, it was made by people. And the nations around the people of God were full of idols. And God said, don't have those idols. Don't have those gods. And there were times it seemed like the decision of God was quite brutal as to some of the things they needed to do to mark out their borders to say, don't adopt those patterns of the world. It's not just about having a king on the throne now, but it's about adopting the idols. And that we see they didn't obey. And we see in the land that there were Asherah poles and there were gods of Baal. There were other foreign gods that were brought into homes. And you might say, well, we don't have idols today. I've visited quite a number of your homes. And I've never been into one of your homes and seen in the corner a little shrine with some, yeah, that's, that's the God that I created. If you have one, you've hidden it well from me when I have come around. I don't think those are where the idols are particularly of prominence today. But I do think there are idols in our hearts. I do think there are other gods of this world and the pattern of this world that we adopt and we share thrones with in our hearts. We don't deny Jesus. We don't backslide and say, well, I'm not having anything to do with Jesus. We just build a few more thrones. And maybe we compartmentalize and that's the person we go to for this and that's the person we go to for that. But let me tell you, that while people say that society has largely gone away from God, I want to dispute that. I believe our society is more religious than it's ever been, but the person on the throne, the idol, is self. That's the biggest religion of our day. And people are feeding the God of self continually, feeding their own desires, their own wants, and it's not a new phenomenon. We read in the book of Judges that they did what seemed right in their own eyes. And let me tell you something that's desperately and sadly true in, about idols is that they will always fail to live up to the expectations we set upon them. And we have got a society that's full of identity crisis. Why is it full of identity crisis? Because they worship in the God of self and they find it's desperately falling short of the ability to satisfy their lives. The God of self, 
just exists everywhere. And it exists man-made images in our life. And it's powerful. And it affects me. A number of years ago, I was taking a train journey from, and I, I lived in the north of England, and I was traveling down for some meetings in London, and I booked my train ticket in advance, and when I got to the train station, there were a few things that is worth you noting about this uh, moment, and one of them was that I had a backpack with me with a computer that I um, needed to write an article for a magazine that I used to write a monthly column for, and I needed to get that complete by the end of that day, but I was going to be in meetings in London all day, and so I had planned that my train ticket was a seat with a table and a plug socket. So I had it planned. What a great idea. I'll use the three and a half hour journey to write this article. I should get it nailed in that time. Second thing it's important to know that when I arrived at the train station, the platform was packed. And as the time of the arriving train got closer, people were jostling their position a little bit. You know, some people try and do that politely, don't they? And they just, you know, find ways of worming their way through crowds, you know, a bit of moonwalking and just, you know, trying to make it look subtle. Others are a little bit more demonstrative and they elbow their way forward. But I didn't need to participate in any of that because I had a ticket with a reserved seat. So I just thought, let them battle it out. It's fine, I'll just let them all get on the train. I'll be a lovely Christian. Go on, no, you first, you go on. So this train arrived, hardly anybody got off, and I could see through the windows that there were loads of people already sitting on the train, and I look and see all the people on the platform, how are they all going to fit on? But it's not my problem, because I've got a ticket with a seat, with a table, with a plug socket, that I'm going to finish this work. And so everyone makes their way into the train, and I just casually walk on before the doors close, and I walk into the carriage that's the one that's printed on my ticket, and I walk towards the seat with a table in front of it that's on my reservation, and I look, and there sitting on my seat is a lady that must have been about 120 years of age. <laughs> and she looked fragile, and she was sat there just casually looking out of the window, and as a follower of Jesus, with three and a half hours worth of work in my backpack, I'm thinking, what do I do? I thought, throw her off. <laughs> but of course, we, if you've been a Christian a while, you know that that's the wrong thing to do, don't you? So what you do is you learn to do nice, to express bad things in nice ways. So I went to the lady, and um, I just bent down and said, excuse me, um, hope you're having a nice day. Um, have you reserved this seat? And she said, oh, no, I haven't. Um, I I'll move. It was free when I got on the train. I I'll move. And I thought, jolly right. Because I could see now, the train had run out of seats, there were people standing thought, absolutely, I've got three and a half hours worth of work in my bag. Yeah, I, I went through all the effort of phoning a call center in India to book this. You know, please, you should move. But I'm a Christian. So I said, it's fine, you enjoy the seat, enjoy the journey. And inside, I was assassinating her. 
So I thought, well, I'm sure there must be another seat on the train somewhere. So I walked through the carriages. And, and, I, and I can see there's a few more carriages ahead. And I saw a member of staff from British Rail walking through. And I said, excuse me, um, someone sat in my seat. See that lady over there, 120-year-old, she's in my seat. But don't, don't disturb her. Don't, no, no, leave her there. Are there any more seats on the train? He said, there are two in the very end carriage. So I thought, brilliant. I'm going to get this work done. So I begin to make my way to the end carriage. And on the way, I see people standing. So I see this guy, and I say, hey, mate, never met you before, but I hear there's two seats in the end carriage. Follow me. We'll get them. So he follows me. We get to the end carriage. The door's open. He sees one. He sits in it. I look around for the other. And there is no other. I've now got two people on this train I want to kill. But I'm a Christian, so I'm smiling. And externally, I'm presenting it as if it's all together. And Jesus is so wonderful. And inside, my heart is just eating up. And I'm thinking, how am I going to get this work done? I spent the three and a half hours standing, holding a pole, watching that lady eat her salmon sandwiches. <laughs> Hello. You know... In many ways, it, it felt and it looked like Jesus was the Lord of my life. But when that train pulled into the station in Paddington, and I stepped out onto the platform, after helping the lady over the step, by the way, looking like I was a great Christian, and the Spirit of God just spoke to me about the stench of my heart, the selfishness, the me, me, me was on the throne. You know, sometimes we don't dethrone Jesus. We just add some more thrones. And I, on that station, repented. Said, God, I know I've preached it. If you're not Lord of all, you're not Lord at all. I'm sorry. And I find that there's a battle for the throne of my heart on such a regular basis. The train seat was just a manifestation of that battle in my heart. I wonder what your manifestations are like. But I do believe that God has empowered us all to win that. You see, and I'm back to the scripture here in Colossians 3. Always be thankful. Because what we praise, we magnify. See, if I'm constantly worshipping at the foot of me and my wants and my feelings and my hopes and my desires and my dreams, I magnify that throne. But it says, always be thankful. And it's not saying just be a person that's positive. It's being a person of praise that wears that garment of praise continually in our lives. Praise evicts the imposter gods from the throne room of our hearts. The idols of our culture are dethroned when we praise our exclusive King of kings and Lord of lords. 
The kingdom of God is inclusive for all, but the throne is exclusive to God. And this is so important that God included it in one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 2 verse 3 says, You must not have any other God but me. The battle for our praise is the battle for a throne. Now, lots of people have been saying to me, over the pandemic, I've recalibrated stuff. I've recalibrated. Things have changed. I've made some decisions. I've evaluated. I've reassessed my life, and I've recalibrated. Some have recalibrated their job and their careers. Some have recalibrated their hobbies or their daily patterns. Others have recalibrated relationships. But I want you to know that unless you've recalibrated your heart, your recalibration will lead to disappointment. It's not change that makes a difference. It's enthroning the Lord that makes a difference in our lives. That's what we recalibrate. Other gods promise so much and disappoint so profoundly. Please hear my cry when I say this. Your career will never satisfy you. Your new life in the countryside will never satisfy you. Your new holiday home by the sea will never satisfy you. Only a life lived with the unrivaled, unequaled King of glory, seated exclusively upon the throne of your heart, only then will you know you are truly satisfied. That's why from the prison cell, Paul could say, always be thankful. I'm seeing a fashion across the world of Christians saying, during the pandemic, we've been able to worship from home, been able to read God's word from home. I don't need church. I don't need to gather with other believers. And I, and I sort of get it, and I understand it. And, you know, and, and I think one of the beautiful things is that people have discovered that they shouldn't just be fed once a week and attending on a Sunday. But I also want to put something of a counterbalance in. Because I do believe you probably could manage worshiping from home. You probably could manage studying the scriptures. You probably could get lots of teaching from YouTube. You probably could try and reach your neighbors with your hope. But whilst I agree that in theory that is possible, I appeal to you that the idols of this world are likely to consume your hearts eventually unless you're in relationship with the family of God. Unless you're in relationship sharpening one another, encouraging one another, building up one another, exhorting one another, just challenging one another. Church is not our idea, it's not a denomination's idea, it's God's idea. And it can look different in different contexts. It doesn't all have to be big gatherings or small gatherings. There's nothing more righteous about meeting in a home than there is to meet in an auditorium. There's nothing better or worse about the one or the other. What is important is our hearts are surrendered and that Jesus is sat on the throne of our lives. And I'm not concerned whether you wear a mask. I'm not concerned whether you sing in tune or out of tune. I'm concerned as your pastor, is Jesus exclusively sat on the throne of your heart? Because some of you struggle to worship on a Sunday, not because we don't sing the songs in the key that suit you, not because we've not sang your favorite, but some of you struggle to worship because you've got multiple gods in the throne room. And they need to be dethroned. 
I appeal to you. The idols of this world, the patterns of this world have always sought to divide and rule. And there's never been a time where the church needs to come together and stand strong together. Never been a greater time in the nation that's needed this than now. I thank God for brothers and sisters that helped recharge my batteries, aren't you? Just on Friday, we, we've done a lot of our staff team stuff, you know, online over this pandemic. And proximity, being in the same room as each other, has not always been possible. In fact, it's been impossible for a lot of the time. But on Friday, we had a day together in our prayer room downstairs. And one of the most significant comments was, isn't it great just to be in the same room? And I think we all left encouraged, inspired by each other's stories. We've been doing these garden parties. And in lots of the garden parties, we've sat around in a circle and people have shared some of their story. And we've left saying, oh, wasn't it good to hear them talk about their faith and see the centrality of Jesus in their life? And you leave encouraged and inspired. I want to encourage you to not be cut off from the family of God. In conclusion, our praise, our always being thankful, our praise points to the King of Kings, exclusively on the throne. When we have Jesus as our King, we never lack resource. We have a faithful King who has bountiful provision. When we have King Jesus exclusively on the throne. The prison walls don't hold us captive. Our hearts are free. When we have King Jesus on the throne, we don't get intimidated by the power of our enemies. We have an all-powerful king. Band, would you come and join me? Our praise and our thanksgiving points to him and says, he is my king. Is he your exclusive king this morning? Are there idols that need to be cast down? Are there patterns of this world that have been influencing and watering down the significance of our God? Let me tell you, in the Old Testament we read a story, it's often quoted as one of these stories around praise, where the Israelites were called to step into victory over the great impenetrable city of Jericho. And we read that God asked them to do this in a very unusual way because these walls were so intimidating. The power of the enemy was so intimidating. There was no way of breaking through in the natural. Certainly it would have taken a great plan and strategy and much force to have broken through that wall. But they are told by God to march around the wall once a day for seven days and on day seven to march around seven times. But who was at the front of that line was significant. And we see it often in the scriptures. We hear that there's praise that goes ahead. Because I believe one of the significant things is that when we put always being thankful at the front, when we put our praise at the front, when we put our decision to throne King Jesus at the front, Everything else comes into context. 
It doesn't mean to say we don't have enemies. It doesn't mean to say we don't have troubles. It doesn't mean to say we're not in prison cells. It doesn't mean to say we don't have to have our radars up for false teaching. It doesn't mean any of that stuff disappears, but it sets our perspective and our understanding really clearly. Because what we praise, we magnify. What we praise becomes bigger. And dethroning the other gods, the idols, and enthroning King Jesus. And as they marched around those walls and they saw the enemies gathered on the top of the walls looking down, wondering what they were doing, they marched around in silence for seven days, but on day seven, the seventh time they walked around, they were to lift up a shout of praise, to declare that God, there is no one like you. There is no king on any throne in this world that is like you. There's no one more powerful than you. There is no equal. There's no one who can compare with you. Church, we need to remember who it is we're serving. We're not serving a bankrupt God. We're not serving a God who is without resource. We're not serving a God who is without vision for the world. We're not serving a God who is without power. He is all-powerful, almighty, all-supreme. And when we praise Him, we magnify Him. Let's stand together. Just close your eyes as you stand. If there are other idols, would you just lift your hands and say, God, I repent. cast down everything that sets itself up, every stronghold that has set itself up in my mind and my heart to compete with the supremacy of Christ. I lay it down. I dismantle it. Jesus comes alongside. Having made a public spectacle of everything that sets itself up in opposition to Christ. Triumphed. circumstance whatever our experience whatever surrounds us we declare there is no one like you oh God there is no one like our Savior you are all powerful almighty all sufficient and we lift you what we praise.